0: The tabloids were National Enquirer-type things, except worse. They wouldn't run anything related to sex. They thought sex was dirty, but ice-pick murders were A-OK. And Goldstein wanted to break that tradition of hypocrisy. And since he was also interested in getting laid a lot, (laughs) uh, he figured the best thing to do was start a sex paper. ¶¶ From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Stephen Heller reminisces about his days in the hippie porn industry. That was normal. Why not start a sex paper? I was also called the only person in New York that could make a sex paper fail. True or
1: false? Stephen Heller came of age in the 1960s and has never done drugs, not even marijuana. Stephen Heller stopped drinking alcohol as a young man when he found himself running through Greenwich Village in February with his pants off and decided he couldn't handle it anymore. Stephen Heller worked for the New York Review of Sex and Screw magazine before becoming an art director at the very serious New York Times, where he worked for decades. Stephen Heller has written more than 200 books. Last one. True or false? Stephen Heller has appeared on Design Matters more often than any other guest. Listeners, true, 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 and true. And much of it is recounted in Steve's new book, Growing Up Underground, a memoir of counterculture New York. Stephen Heller... Welcome back. It is always an absolute delight to see you back in our little recording booth.
0: I feel very unclaustrophobic in here.
1: (laughs) Good. I'm glad. Steve, let's get right into the book. You start growing up underground stating the following This book is about, you guessed it, me. However, it is not a trek through the hills and valleys of my autobiographical topology. I focus instead on how blind luck put me in intriguing places with curious people from the mid-1960s to the mid-1970s. So these first three sentences on their own lead me to my first three questions. Ready? I'm ready. First question. I know you've been writing, rewriting, cutting and pasting snippets of your autobiography on and off for almost 20 years. The turning point to actually doing it came after reading designer Paul Sayre's book, Two Dimensional Man, A Graphic Memoir. How did that influence you?
0: It just made me competitive.
1: <laughs> oh.
0: uh, you know, it was unusual for a designer to write what was officially, technically, a memoir or autobiography. Uh, you know, they're are lots of monographs, and there are lots of me, me, me's in the monographs, but Paul actually covered his life, and I reviewed it for iMagazine, and uh, I said, I've been sitting around with little bits and pieces of this for a long time, so I'd like to do one too before my coil unravels.
1: My second question about that intro was, why the specific time frame, that 10-year time frame from the mid-1960s to the mid-1970s?
0: Well, I was a big fan of John Reed, who wrote 10 Days That Shook the World. I wanted to do something that was 10 years that shook my world.
1: Ah, okay. And then last question. Do you really truly feel as if it were blind luck? that put you in these intriguing places with these specific and intriguing people? What about the specific choices that you made to get to those places? I just have such a big issue with the idea of luck.
0: Well, I have an issue with luck and fate. But uh, I think there was some divine intervention. Okay, well. And that's the reason why I never did drugs.
1: (laughs) Why is that, Steve?
0: Because— in my superstitious, semi-religious way, I said to myself, if I ever do a drug, something terrible will land on my head. You know, the the old piano falling out of the window.
1: Yeah, Roxanne, Roxanne Gay, my wife, also feels that way. I think she's done drugs one time. And she's written an essay about how that one time she smoked marijuana, she was so paranoid she was going to – she was laying on the bed. She was so paranoid she was going to fall off the bed. She she actually thought about tying herself to the bed and ended up in the hospital. (laughs) But that's a whole other podcast
0: on a whole other day. We're funny people.
1: Yes. You, You go on to state in the introduction that this is not a comprehensive life story. Rather, you've assembled a sampler of essays that revolve around two facets of your life. First, the personal, which includes a psychological rationale for being a typically rebellious teenager. And the professional, which reveals how becoming rebellious led you into a career as a graphic designer and art director, first with the underground newspapers and hippie pornography that we're going to talk about, and how that ultimately led to a 33-year career at the Straight and Narrow New York Times. What made you decide to structure the book in this way?
0: Well, I didn't think my total existence on the planet would make for good stories. Uh, I structured it in this way so that I would have less to write. You know, I, I did a biography, as you know, of Paul Rand, who lived to be 86. And then I did, a few years after that, uh, a biography of Alvin Lustig, who lived to be 45. And I always joke that I chose Alvin Lustig because he had less years, which meant less work. And uh, I figured 10 years was a a good book-ended journey.
1: Yeah, because anybody that knows you knows what a slacker you are in terms of shirking away from hard work.
0: Well, I have a ambivalence about work.
1: (laughs) Okay. You are what you refer to in the book as an appointment baby. Mm -hmm. Talk about that.
0: I think the appointment baby issue is really what triggered the final manuscript. I found out one strange day that my mother had made an appointment with her doctor to induce labor and have me. And I had never heard that story before, and she seemed to be very proud of it. And I realized that uh, it fit her narcissistic way of living, that uh, she wanted to go on a trip, which my parents did often, all over the world. And uh, she wanted it on a certain date, which meant I had to be born prior to her leaving on her cruise, which meant that her figure had to return and she had to look as good as she could on said cruise. So I became an appointment baby, and I never heard that term before. You know, I've heard about induced pregnancies. I've heard about cesareans. But the appointment baby thing seemed so 1950s
1: Did she get her figure back in time?
0: She said she did. In fact, when she was showing this video that she had made from an 8-millimeter film, my father was uh, dutifully photographing her on B deck, and he was on A deck. And uh, I wasn't around anywhere. And uh, my wife, Louise Feely, who was... She was showing the video, too, said, where was baby Steve? And my mom said, uh, he's at home with the housekeeper.
1: So shortly after you were born, she just left you, handed you off to the housekeeper and took a cruise with yeah, you dad. Yeah, her
0: figure was back. and
1: It's sort of crazy to think about what women did back in those days, in the 60s. My mother proudly told me that she decided when she was pregnant with me that she was going to go on a diet. And the first, this is what she told me proudly, the first thing she did after she had me was weigh herself.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> like,
1: How is this something you think is good?
0: I think people worry about a lot of personal things that, are perhaps triggered by the chemicals in the brain that happen when you're in that kind of physical state.
1: That's generous of you.
0: I've I've become a little less cynical about the whole affair, having written about it and having cut out a lot of the anger part.
1: How did you get past that? What gave you the the sense that that wasn't something that would necessarily be helpful to the memoir?
0: Well, I didn't want to write a revenge book Mm. because there was nobody I wanted to take revenge against. I mean, I'd, I'd do it all over again the way it happened because the way it happened is what's turned out. And I'm relatively happy within my constant depression. The paradox is that for 10 years before my mom passed away at 93, She was writing a memoir, and she was doing it all in longhand on sheets of paper of different sizes and colors. And she had this huge file, and that every time I would come to their house for dinner, which wasn't often, but every time I did, she would pull the file out and say, can you please help me edit this? And it became an absurd part of my life. I just wanted to avoid it in such a visceral way that I would just say, no, cut her off, and she'd continue. She was very persistent and tenacious, Uh, and it was all about her travels around the world, and I presume there were some interesting things in there because they had met a lot of interesting people, but I wasn't about to spend uh, a large chunk of my life and time uh, re- hashing her life do you still have those files and
1: that writing i don't know that'd be an interesting read
0: i have the eight millimeter films my father took but they're films and we haven't transferred them to digital
1: early on in the book you tell us your full legal name isn't stephen heller can you share what that name is what your full legal name is and why you don't use it
0: no, because uh, then people want to make won't people. buy the book.
1: <laughs> Spoiler alert. Well,
0: No, I can tell you. Oh, good. It's Harmon, H-A-R-M-O-N. It was the name of a baseball player who played second base and I think outfield as well for the Washington Senators and uh, Minnesota Twins or some team like that. And his name was Harmon Killebrew. And even though I wasn't named after him as a kid camp counselors and so-called friends would call me Killer Brew or Killer. But I thought the name being rather odd defined a person that I didn't want to be. The names that people have now are so exotic and eccentric. You know, I I could easily have been called Moon or Moonwalker or... Um, and live nicely with it in the 60s, but that name wasn't going to get me very far.
1: Now, is it true that Louise Feely, your wife, the legendary designer Louise Feely, told you that she probably would not have wanted to go out with you if she knew your legal name was Harmon Heller?
0: That's what she said.
1: Why? It seems uncharacteristically shallow.
0: It is uncharacteristically shallow of her, but at the same time, I wouldn't want to have to yell, (laughs) "Harmon."
1: When did you tell her about your name? I
0: told her a year after we met. Uh, I didn't tell my son until he was about five or six years old.
1: Now, from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong here with my research and and the material from your book, when you were 15, your parents went on a month-long sightseeing trip to Russia and they sent you to live with a family friend in Stockholm, Sweden. And the Swedes were the first folks who refused to call you Harmon. They felt Steve was easy to say, and so you became Stephen Heller at that time. Is that true?
0: Sweden changed my life. How so? F- forever and ever. Well, it changed my life uh, in terms of the name. I realized I didn't have to live with that albatross around my neck. But it also changed in terms of political consciousness and social consciousness. The people I lived with were very enlightened about world events. Vietnam was just beginning. There were many Europeans who were against our involvement. And uh, I lived with one family that was definitely communist. So I was, let's say, indoctrinated between courses of uh, smoked fish and uh, other things.
1: Now, while you were there, in addition to your political awakening, you also grew your hair. And in your book, you write about how, at the time, strangers went out of their way to physically and verbally attack you when you came back because your wavy black hair was down to your shoulder and your hair then became a lightning rod for really rude comments and unwanted physical contact that culminated in an experience at the all-boys prep school you attended. Can you talk a little bit about what happened at that point?
0: Well, in Sweden, they were far ahead socially of the U.S., just as they were in England. And um, what seemed like freak show, hippies called themselves freaks, was perfectly normal in Sweden. But I felt that hair had always defined me. It was the thing that was a lightning rod for my mother. She was always very particular about dress and appearance and grooming. And it was the easiest way to defy her by changing the norm. So I grew the hair long and I had no real sense that it would be offensive to anybody. I knew it would be different. I was self-conscious about doing it, but I did it anyway. But it really did cause people to be upset. They questioned what their lives were about. It triggered some sort of deep mass psychosis uh, so that Greenwich Village was the only safe place I could be. Uh, unless I disguised myself, which I essentially did and took strange, circuitous routes through dangerous parts of the Lower East Side to get to McDougal Street.
1: They made you cut your hair when you went to school.
0: I went to a boys' prep school, and I went there because my parents had me tested at NYU, a thematic apperception test, which to this day I despise. Uh, it's a, it was actually a kind of fun test because they show you these drawings that had some things going on, purposely going on. They'd have different objects. It was the opposite of, of a Rorschach test. And it was intended to let your emotions dictate how you saw the narrative of the picture. And uh, there was one that just cracked me up. And I don't explain why it cracked me up in the book, because there's a certain amount of embarrassment. But it was prurient, to say the least. And the graduate student who was giving me the test just made copious notes. As I'm unable to speak, I'm laughing so hard. (laughs) Uh, but it turned out that that test was the measuring stick that was used to determine whether I would have a normal co-ed life or become a regimented businessman-to-be.
1: Why did they make you cut your hair? Why were they so brutal about your hair in that school?
0: Well, you got to remember that in those days, everybody was kind of organization man except in a younger level. So there was a lot of conformity, and prep schools were conformist by their very nature. And this particular school, which doesn't exist anymore, thank heavens, had what was called a dean of discipline. And his name was Demi, and I used to think he was a demigod. But he would stand at the top of the stairway as we answered the bell for the first period, and he would literally measure the amount of fringe that went over your shirt collar. And if there was too much, well, he would tell you to have it cut by the next day. Or if there was too much, as in my case, he had other means.
1: Which was rather devastating.
0: Which was very traumatic. I mean, the school was adjacent to the uh, YMCA. And there was a barber in the YMCA. And He and Demi must have worked out a strategic torture plan, kind of the equivalent of waterboarding. Right. And uh, it sent me into a tailspin. And that combined with my mother's obsession with it and being proper and all, I just started slowly or quickly going down the slope.
1: Well, I mean, it's really, from what I understand, what motivated you to start drawing pictures of your feelings. And those drawings became a big part of who you were, and they became a topic of your twice-weekly therapy sessions. And really, I think, in many ways, it seems like those drawings saved your life.
0: Yeah, being able to draw was a release. After the haircut, which was basically taking a nice head of black hair and making it into a, uh, what I look like now. I just went home, and I stayed home, and i had only go to school. But I went out and bought myself some Dr. Martin's dyes and some India ink and sketchbooks and started drawing. And I had a particular apocalyptic view uh, that I talk about in the book.
1: I understand that your therapist was so enamored by your work that it helped you develop confidence about your drawing.
0: She helped develop confidence in everything. She was the one that told my parents what they were doing wrong. Mm. And you needed some intervention like that. She, She told them the things that could trigger me. And, you know, whether it's a snowflake kind of thing, or whether it's a really good intervention, uh, I opt for the latter. But she also did like the drawings a lot. And uh, so I thought there might be something here and I should continue. So I did continue until uh, it was suggested that I try to sell them to the New Yorker of all places.
1: Start as a Tom.
0: And uh, New Yorker didn't have any use for them. I remember at 15 or thereabouts uh, visiting the art director of Evergreen Review uh, who was an illustrator named Dick Hess. And I noticed when I went to pick up my portfolio the following day it hadn't been touched. Mm -mm. And that sent me into a tailspin for about 6 to 12 months.
1: Your dad orchestrated a transfer in the middle of your junior year, you transferred to Walden where Neil Shevlin, your art teacher liked your work. And I understand that his encouragement gave you the courage to begin to show your portfolio to several underground newspaper art editors that you, you got a very different response from, from those editors and art directors. What gave you the sense, like how did you even know about these underground newspapers.
0: Well, when I was 15 or so, I saw on the newsstand a cover of the East Village Other. And I show it in a slideshow of mine. It's not in the book. And it was a collage of General William Westmoreland, the commander in the field of Vietnam. And coming out of his fatigue uniform was a serpent. And I just loved that. Uh, Then there was another cover that I saw, and I bought the issue, and it was of Cardinal Spellman, who was the vicar of the U.S. Army, and he was the cardinal in charge of the New York Archdiocese, and he had died. And the headline read, congratulations on your promotion. (laughs) It was just the kind of humor that I needed. I had grown up with an uncle— Uh, who was a terrific man, professor at Columbia. His daughter, my cousin, is now vice dean of law at Columbia. Uh, My other cousin, his daughter, is a cellist in in Paris. He was the one who saved my butt. Uh, He told my parents to send me to the shrink or I would fall into the pit and never come out. Uh, he was the one that told me about the Boyds and the Bees, uh, told me about contraceptives, was frank with me about just about everything, and introduced me to the great comics of the era, Mort Saul, Nichols and May, Jules Pfeiffer, who was my hero and who I later worked with. So I fortunately had that support. I didn't have it 24 hours a day, but... I remember the phone call on a Saturday morning where he called to tell my parents that I should be allowed to drop out of school. High school? No, college. Oh, okay. By that point, there was something else going on at NYU that led to my release. But he convinced them that I didn't need college. And he, of course, was a Ph.D. And his field was, among other things, academic freedom.
1: Well, you started working after you graduated high school. That's why I was like, wait, I thought you graduated high school. Um, You were offered a job at the Free Press doing old school paste up by the art director, J.C. Suarez, and he left the paper three weeks after he hired you. You became the de facto art director at 16 years old.
0: At 16.
1: uh, Of the New York Free Press. What was that like for you?
0: It was kind of unreal, But it was a job. I mean, I had been working since I was 12. I worked actually in the art department of Bergdorf Goodman. I worked for an advertising agency when I was 12 or 13. Didn't last long at either place and screwed things up royally in both places. But working was not unusual or aberrant for me. So when I was brought on... It just felt like, okay, this is the way life is. Uh, I was taught how to do something, not very well, but I fit the bill that they needed. But it was um, that stuff that got me interested in design, particularly design and illustration.
1: You also decided at that time or around that time to create your own magazine with gift money that you saved from your bar mitzvah. How much money did you save, and what made you decide at that point to start your own publication?
0: Well, I know exactly how much I made because my father was an accountant for the Air Force, and he kept meticulous records, and it was to be put away for college. College was not expensive then. NYU was probably $500 a semester, and School of Visual Arts was even cheaper. But after experiences in both NYU and SVA, where I was either thrown out or left, uh, depending on how you read the records. I had some of that money available to me.
1: Well, just as an aside, you now have two honorary doctorates. Well done, Dr. Heller. Donata. You titled the magazine Borrowed Time. Why that particular name?
0: Because I felt we all lived on borrowed time. I was reading a lot of Sartre and um, Camus at the time. Uh, The thing that kept me sane while I was in high school was reading Russian literature.
1: That was my minor in college, by the way. I don't know if you know that about me. I didn't know
0: that. Well, Russian literature is not a lot of laughs.
1: No. That's why I love it.
0: But I would find myself alone during certain periods of time, and I would go into the bathroom Uh, of our Town apartment, and there was a riser, a heat riser, steam riser. And you could hear into other people's apartments through the riser. So I would sit and listen to other people's conversations and read my Russian literature. So I didn't feel alone. And at the same time, I felt kind of morose. And I enjoyed feeling morose. And I figured the Russians enjoyed feeling morose, So, you know, I remember reading Lermontov and how depressing a hero of our time was uh, and how good I felt.
1: Yep, yep. (laughs) I completely understand about Russian literature. And people often ask me, oh, so that means you speak Russian? And I'm like, no, 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 I read it in English translation. It was, it was the content that I was so desperate to read and, and related to.
0: Well, at Walden, there was actually the woman who much later became the headmaster taught a Russian literature course. So it was like you'd go in there all jolly, and you'd come out with clouds over your head. Mm, weeping.
1: Your friend Timothy Jackson was going to be the art director of Borrowed Time, but after Brad Holland answered an ad you placed for illustrators, he took over the role. And I think that it's safe to say that Brad Holland is one of the very big influences in your life and in the direction your life took at that point. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Well, I devoted a whole chapter to Brad as my mentor. Uh, For those who don't know who he is, he's one of the greatest illustrators in the United States and really helped change the course of illustration from being a profession of visual mimics to creating content, creating ideas that would supplement or complement texts. And uh, he had come off the boat, so to speak, from the Midwest. He had worked at Hallmark Cards at the Rabbit Division, is what he called it. And um, he answered an ad for contributors, and most of the contributors who answered the ad were just, you know, local hippies who I would see around periodically around Washington Square. And uh, Brad was the first serious artist that I met, other than uh, Neil Shevlin, who was my art teacher, uh, who I learned later committed suicide. and. Brad just wanted to be able to place his drawings somewhere. He had just gotten hired by Playboy to do a monthly column. Uh, He had done something for Avant-Garde. He had done all these little books for Hallmark. So he was a true professional. And he taught me what a typeface was. He taught me what a paste-up was. He taught me that you line things up, that... There's a grid that you follow. Uh, He gave me, in a month's time, uh, a full graduate program. You wrote
1: this about what Brad taught you, and I want to read it because I think it's so special. You write, Brad became my teacher, not in the ways of illustration, but in publication design in general and visual thinking specifically. I learned aspects of type use I hadn't appreciated before. Notably, I learned to achieve expression through letters and their accents, voices, and pitches. This is the expression that different faces bring to text and headlines. I admired Brad's passion and listened spellbound as he told me about his duels with editors and art directors over his principle to never render anyone else's ideas. I understood that Brad was not only fighting the conventional wisdom that an illustrator was merely the extension of an art director's or, worse, an editor's hands. He was also trying to radically alter, if not expunge, the conventions of slavishly sentimental illustration and create a more intimate personal art. You you, and Brad joined forces with underground cartoonist Yosarian and created a plan to conquer the alternative art and cartoon world by offering subscriptions. And you made a few hundred of the first and only issue of Borrowed Time and sent it to every underground newspaper that you could. And then you waited for the landslide of return subscription cards to arrive in the mail. So what happened next?
0: Well, it was slightly different. We actually went out in front of the Fillmore East— and sold them to people waiting online to see Big Brother in the Holding Company or whoever else was playing. Johnny Winter's brother, I remember Edgar Winter, was in line for some reason. Wow. And he kept calling me gentleman. <laughs> what we did was we started a, a syndication service called the Asylum Press. Brad did the logo. I, well, we made a bunch of silkscreen posters of it. And I have one framed in my office still. And we thought we'd send this work to underground papers around the world and uh, get some nominal fee for doing so. And it didn't really amount to much of anything except we did the one piece. We uh, Brad's work was being picked up in any case. I mean, uh, my stuff never really went that far. I got picked up, I think, by the underground press service, picked up by one of the Columbia University uh, radical papers during the uprising there. But mostly it was running in the New York Free Press, where I had a weekly uh, spot.
1: Why did you decide to stop drawing?
0: I decided to stop because I wasn't that good at it. According to who? According to Brad, in a way, in a tacit way. He never said, hey, good work. So I assumed if you don't say good work, that means you don't think it's good work. And I wanted some sort of accolade, which I wasn't getting. Also, I couldn't draw realistically to save my life. I could draw expressionistically. Uh, There are a few of the images in the book. And there was another reason, a a silly reason in retrospect, but it it was a reason nonetheless. My mother actually liked the drawings.
1: Didn't she collage with them?
0: She made a collage on a table. Uh, My mother, you know, would have been an artist had it been another time of life. She created children's clothing lines, And some of it was about design. Most of it was about sourcing, but some of it was designy. And uh, she liked the drawings and wanted to show them to her friends. And I say in the book, she used them like her travel photographs. And I let her do it, but it really upset me that it was being exploited and co-opted. So one reason for ending was... My frustration with that. It was self-indulgent. Your drawing was
1: self-indulgent? No. Or her behavior? My my
0: drawing was self-indulgent, to be sure, but to quit was self-indulgent. I was doing it for spite.
1: Yeah. I wish you hadn't. By the time you were 17, ripe old age of 17... He became the first art director of Screw Magazine, which was the pioneering underground sex review that really helped trigger the 1960s sexual revolution, and it was founded by Al Goldstein. How did you first meet Al, and what gave him the sense you could art direct what was ostensibly a national magazine at 17 years old?
0: Well, first of all, it wasn't a national magazine at the time.
1: But it became one.
0: It became one, but we grew into it.
1: But you grew into it with your talent, so it still counts. Well,
0: there was no talent involved. I mean, the pictures in the book will show that to anybody. I was working at the Free Press. Our typesetter and managing editor was a guy named Jim Buckley, who was, I always thought, very straight and narrow. And when Al Goldstein came into our office unannounced one day, he came to sell a story. And the story was about being an industrial spy for the Bendix Corporation. Goldstein had a lot of strange sub-careers. He was a very neurotic, mixed-up guy. But he could write his way out of a paper bag, as they say. And he offered the story to our editor, who thought it was worthy of publication. Not only that, it was worthy of going on the cover as the cover story. And unbeknownst to me, they came up with this idea to start a sex paper. Uh, Goldstein was writing these blood and guts stories, lover kills intruder with uh, ice pick up the nose kind of thing (laughs) uh, for these tabloids that were run by a guy named Myron Fass. And the tabloids were National Enquirer-type things, except worse. They wouldn't run any, anything related to sex. They thought sex was dirty, but ice-pick murders were A-OK. And Goldstein wanted to break that tradition of uh, hypocrisy. And since he was also interested in getting laid a lot... <laughs> Uh, He figured the best thing to do was start a sex paper. Ah, the 60s. And I happened to be sitting in an office adjacent to the typesetting machine. And somebody must have asked, who's going to paste this up? And they looked at me, and I looked at them, and I did. And it looks like I just chopped things out of books and threw them on a page. It was very easy in those days because you could use wax, which also felt very soothing on the hand.
1: How did you get Milton Glaser to design the Screw logo?
0: Well, that came many years later. I I worked for Screw for first six issues, and then Goldstein and I got into a big fight about the change of the logo. I didn't know how to draw letters or do typography or lettering. But I knew that what we had was terrible, and I knew that what he wanted to use, which some friend of his made, was just as bad, if not worse. And he called me one night to say, we're using it, and I said, I'm not going to use it. And he said he was often not the most pleasant person, although I I really loved him dearly. Uh, But he made me cry, and the next day I quit. And started my own sex paper. What was that like? That was just like normal. You know, why not start a sex paper? I had an idea with my co-publishers that we would do something different from what Screw did. Screw was kind of the raunchy, funny, but raunchy. We were going to be more serious and artistic. So, We managed to get Grove Press to finance the first issue. And we got full-color printing on a heavier newsprint. And uh, I got typefaces from uh, uh, these $1 a word places. And I was actually able to design something that was not as embarrassing as Screw. Uh, But I was also called the only person in New York that could make a sex paper fail. Why? Because we couldn't sell. You know, the first few issues sold. It's called the New York Review of Sex. Then we called it the New York Review of Sex and Politics. Politics, yes. And ultimately the New York Review of Sex and Aerospace. And then it was gone.
1: While you were working on the fourth issue of the New York Review of Sex and Politics, you received a telephone call from the New York District Attorney's Office. What did they tell you?
0: Well, they said, don't leave. We're coming over. You're under arrest.
1: And you obeyed. You did not leave.
0: No. I uh, had no place to go. And, you know, I was cowed by authority anyway. My partners, who were much older than I... You were still a minor. I was a minor. and My partners weren't around. One of the cops who came, he... I call him the heavyset one, he had come to our office a few weeks before and bought a bunch of papers saying he ran an adult bookstore. Uh, and that was the evidence they needed. So it was a sting operation. It was a sting. And the younger cop, the thinner cop, uh Tutti and Muldoon from Car 54, <laughs> um, he was an idealist he was interested in disrupting the mob and screw the new york review of sex all the other underground sex papers were distributed by mob families and that's a whole other story in a whole other book but he said you know we're not looking to shut you guys down uh, but we are interested in disrupting organized crime
1: Ah, but they were rounding up all of the blue magazines.
0: There was a lot of vice policing in New York City. Gay clubs were being raided all the time. Uh, It was the era of the massage parlor. And at a certain point, it calmed down. But apparently all you needed was one or two people or organizations to complain to the district attorney about something and he'd go after. Unless, of course, there was some legal reason he shouldn't. And we, I think, were able to prove in state Supreme Court that it was prior restraint and legally they had no right to uh, take our publications off the newsstands. In those days, you had to be a veteran to run a newsstand. And there were a lot of blind newsstand dealers. Um, So they didn't even know what they were selling, but they would have their papers taken from them and sometimes be arrested. So it was a, a crazy time legally.
1: In the period between that arrest and the trial... You were arrested again in another roundup and somehow during the blitz of briefs and testimony it was determined that the DA did not adhere to the law and you were exonerated on all charges before going to trial. And at that point, your newsstand distributor gave you an ultimatum. Either you include more hardcore sex. So first it was being taken off the newsstands because it was too lewd. Now the distributors wanted you to have more hardcore sex um, to interest a a viable readership, or he'd fold you. I believe that's when you went back to Screw.
0: No, that's when I went to a magazine called Rock.
1: (laughs) Okay. I I
0: went— from oh, the rock sex magazine, to rock not- and roll.
1: <laughs> I have so much sex on the brain that I was like, that's right, rock magazine, the yeah. magazine for men with rocks.
0: You know, I remember it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> and I, 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 I didn't work for High Times, <laughs> although I knew a bunch of the editors there. Well, uh, But
1: you were in jail for a bit, right? You were well, held- I, was,
0: I was held in a detention pen twice. Uh, The first time it was with the prostitutes uh, because I was underage and I had a long ponytail at the time and they were all playing with it and it all seemed very cute and they were making jokes and it wasn't the most pleasant place to be in the tombs uh, in New York City. I'm sure it still isn't. Uh, But the second time I was arrested, I had turned 18. So I was no longer with the, the Goyles. I was with uh, hardened vagrants and drunks and other people that were put in the tank for night court. So you have a rap sheet. No, I was able to uh, expunge the rap sheet. I thought it would help me expunge other things, but it never did.
1: While you were at Rock, now it's all coming back to me, that's where you met Patty Smith.
0: I met Patty Smith there.
1: She was an art dir- no, she was an editor, right an she editor and a writer.
0: Well, she was a writer, a reporter. I mean, anybody who was a writer was kind of an editor. She was an interesting character uh, who often talked about her ambitions to be a rock and roll star and mentioned a few names in passing a lot that were of interest to me, like Sam Shepard, the playwright. I loved his work, particularly Operation Sidewinder. She never mentioned Robert Maplethorpe. She mentioned Todd Rundgren a lot, and I was not a fan of Todd Rundgren. <gasps> For shame. But um, we hung out a little bit. At that time, Rock Magazine was producing rock and roll shows at the New York Academy of Music, which became the Palladium and uh, I would do programs and posters and things for the shows. Most of the shows were oldies shows, 1950s doo-wop groups, really great ones too. But one show we had was Van Morrison, Linda Ronstadt, and Tim Buckley. And uh, she and I went to the, the show and that's where we kind of disappeared and she went one way, I went the other. And I had heard that she was fired from the paper because the publisher wanted more reportage and she was writing more lyrical stuff. But she met her uh, lifelong music partner there, Lenny Kay, who was a writer for us, who I always liked. I'm still in touch periodically with him. So it just became that, this one little blip in her life and in my life... It kind of meant something years later when she became a punk icon. And I ran into her one day because her kids went to the same school that my son went to. And I said, you don't remember me, I'm sure, but we used to hang out. And she looked at me and she kind of in a daze said, oh, yeah, I remember that what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm art director of the New York Times Book Review. And she said, oh, they just gave me a bad review for a book of poems. And that was the end of it.
1: (laughs) You then went back to Screw, and that's when you worked with Milton. Talk about that experience.
0: Well, when I went back to Screw, I wasn't sure I was going back to Screw. I I had finished what I could do with rock. And I was going to do an interim gig at Screw because I met uh, the woman who became my first wife there. And, um, the magazine just looked like shit. I had learned to discern good from bad, or at least good from mediocre. And I suggested that they get a redesign. And since I figured I wasn't going to be working there very long, let somebody else redesign it and I'll pick up the pieces. So I had heard about Pushpin for the longest time, and I convinced Al and Jim to contact Pushpin and see whether they'd be interested. Uh, Seymour Quast, co-founder with Milton, who is my best friend now, admitted to me that there was no question that they would do it because they did anything that would pay money. And Goldstein was willing to pay a fairly sizable amount at that time. So they took it on as a serious job. And Milton did some logos and Seymour did some logos. And Seymours were, as I remember, more decorative. And Milton did one that was just so corporate, it seemed a total anomaly. He did a Helvetica logo, all caps, and he took the E, uh, the middle part of the E, and extended it like a hard-on. Into the W,
1: one of the great logos of the twentieth century, Steve.
0: Probably, it
1: really is. Really, so it sure beats out I
0: Love New York. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well,
1: (laughs) definitely on par.
0: (laughs) But I didn't appreciate it. Really, I really didn't, and I didn't appreciate the Helvetica, and the pages inside were stripped of any kind of decorative elements. Uh, he redesigned the Peter meter, which was Al Goldstein's measuring stick <laughs> <Device>. for films. <laughs> uh, and he redesigned the shit list, which was uh, also one of Goldstein's favorite tools. But they used Helvetica, Lightline Gothic, straight columns. There was no ragging or anything like that. Uh, and the photographs were basically straight black-and-white pictures on a full page, no bleed because it was a tabloid. And when they gave us the pages to work with, they had tissues over them, and I put my own tissue over their tissues, and I made copious notes about why this is bad. And Goldstein sent it back to uh, Milton and had me surreptitiously listen on the other extension. And Milton was rather annoyed by it. Uh, So I lost my battle. And the Glazer issue came out, and we continued to follow his lead for about six months. And then uh, a year later, I had somebody come in with an airbrush and balloon up the Helvetica so that it could be run as a duotone and give a sense of markiness In
1: 1973 Brad Holland had a party wherein you met the great Ruth Ansell the then art director of the New York Times magazine and there you talked about the magazine business you asked if you could show her your portfolio she agreed and the meeting went better than you could have ever expected what happened next
0: Well we had lunch and we seemed to get along. I was looking for another job. I wanted to be a designer, I wanted to be an art director. Herb Ballin was always a hero. There were other designers who were uh, doing things that were of interest to me, like Lester Beale. Uh, Frank Zachary, who was the art director of Holiday Magazine, I related to him, I didn't know what he did, but. His name was on the masthead as art director, so I thought he must be great. We later became good friends. So Ruth and I talked magazines, and she looked at the portfolio, which had stuff in there that was from Screw and stuff that was from other places and other things that I did. At Screw, we did other publications, uh, some that weren't sexual. And uh, she seemed to like what I did with type. Or she wasn't wearing her glasses. (laughs) No. And she offered to uh, me a temporary position designing pages for the magazine, said she had a show her boss, Lou Silverstein, who was the great newspaper designer and assistant managing editor of the Times. And I got a call a few weeks later saying Lou wanted to see me about another job. By this time... Most of my friends who were illustrators were working for the op-ed page. You know, it was like that was the creme de la creme of uh, illustration and of alternative journalism at the time. And uh, Lou said, I'd like you to help out with the op-ed page. And I kind of pressed him, do you mean art director? And he went, yeah, 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 art director. And he offered me less than I was making at Screw. There were less benefits. Screw gave incredible benefits. And I figured this would be a good career move. So I took the, uh, the offer. About two weeks after I started, I had a, two offices. I had an office in the art department, long desk in the crazy old 1930s art department and I had an office up on the editorial floor around the library and in that area were all the editorial writers. So here were were the kings and queens of editorial journalism and I was one of the members of the group and uh, I got a call from the guards downstairs and they said, there are some guys down here with very long hair that want to see you. And I figured the guards were just being guardy. People with long hair were still suspect. And he said, and you have to come down and we can't let them in until you come down. So I came down and the first thing I saw when I turned the corner from the elevator bank were three apes, three people dressed in ape suits. And uh, they took me into a limousine and brought me to the market diner where the owner came out with a big bucket of bananas. And that was just one of three different times Al Goldstein did his best to embarrass me at the New York Times.
1: Oh, but it didn't work. You ended up not only working for the op-ed page, you also ended up becoming the art director of the book review the New York Times Book Review, this section that is one of the most read sections of any newspaper in the world. You did that for 33 years.
0: I did that for a long time.
1: You worked for six different editors while you were at the New York Times Book Review, and you write about how this job became the foundation of your professional life as an art director, and all that followed. But you conclude the book stating that that is another story.
0: That is another story. It was, I, I had grown up. It's called Growing Up Underground. Yeah. So I had come out of the, uh, the caverns of New York. I knew Hilly Crystal, who started CPGBs. When I saw CPGBs for the first time before he opened it, I thought, this is disgusting. And I had no desire to be part of that group. Certain friends of mine were already... Uh, making their way out of the underground. And uh, the op-ed page was this kind of transitionary point. I did it for two and a half or three years, whatever it was. I did the book review simultaneously for six months or more. I didn't get along with the op-ed editor. Charlotte Curtis. Charlotte Curtis, who Gay Talese warned me to watch out for when I got, the job at the time, as he was working on his book, Thy Neighbor's Wife. So he spent a lot of time at Screw. And uh, I just figured that was a good place to end, because if I started on the book review, everything else falls into place after that. And I didn't know how to make it into the same kind of story.
1: Will there be a sequel to this memoir to tell those stories? Seems like there's so much more to still be told?
0: Well, I'm not sure. I like the idea of writing something that was very personal. I've written a lot of objective essays, journalism, reportage. This was, as you said up front, about me. And uh, I don't see myself as a fiction writer, but I do see something that happened during those 30 years that could make a possible Romana Clef?
1: I've known you a long time. I'm very fortunate you had your lunch with Ruth Ansell. I had my lunch with you, the lunch that changed my life, that helped me write my first book, which you essentially handed to me on a silver platter, invited me to co-found the master's in branding program where we're speaking in my little podcast studio. It is a glorious glorious book. I've read it several times. I have spent the last hour plus talking with you about just a sliver of some of the remarkable stories that you recount in this book. Time working at Interview Magazine, working um, with so many of some of the world's greatest art directors and illustrators and for listeners that might want to hear more about Steve's many experiences at the Times or his role as co chair at the School of Visual Arts MFA designer as entrepreneur, or his 40 years at the helm of Print Magazine or the other 199 books he has written, we have 14 episodes with Steve in the Design Matters archive that you can listen to in anticipation of the sequel to this remarkable memoir. Steve, I just want to thank you so much for everything that you do in the world, for your writing, for your reportage, for your generosity, and for your friendship. And thank you for joining me today to talk about this remarkable new book of yours. And thank you so much for making so much work that matters.
0: Well, I must thank you. You're the first person to interview me on this book. I have looked forward to it for a long time. Our friendship is very important to me and dear to me, and uh, it's been a great ride. Absolutely. Thank
1: you. Stephen Heller's latest book, his memoir, is titled Growing Up Underground, A Memoir of Counterculture New York. You can read more about Steve and read about all of his other wonderful books he's written at hellerbooks.com, and you can read his daily Heller column on printmag.com. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Weiland.